She's a business mogul. Number one. And wellness expert. How can I help? And now Chantel Ray and her amazing guests are here to guide you on your wellness journey. Time to level up. Welcome to the Waste Away Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode. And I'm so excited. We have Kristen Johnson and Maria Claps, and they are from wiseandwell.me. And today our topic is all about hormone replacement therapy, thyroid, and our title is Our Hormones, the Ultimate Biohack. So, ladies, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start with that. What if someone asked you that question? Because I know you're super big on hormones, you're super big on thyroid. But if they said, Are hormones the ultimate biohack? How would you answer that? I would say no, actually. I know you want us to maybe say yes, but but no. And and that's coming from women. And I I can certainly speak for the both of us, although Kristen, I'm sure we'll have something to add. But um, we both are very, very passionate about hormone replacement therapy. We both feel like, uh, we'll just drop a bomb at the beginning here. We both feel like it's actually safer to age with hormones than without them. But they're not the ultimate biohack because, and I don't want to say that they are because you know, they're more of an optimizer and women need to have the basics dialed in. And quite frankly, most women don't have the basics dialed in. So, yeah. So good. Yeah, I think, um, you know, too often women think it's going to be like another shiny object magic pill that's going to fix everything. Um, and most of us have some foundational things that we could work on and improve. But even that, you know, we don't want it to come off sounding like that's just our opinion. At the end of the day, there are studies that show that if a woman has metabolic derangement, so insulin resistance, inflammation, you know, oxidative stress, et cetera, and she puts HRT into that body with any metabolic health issues, she actually increases her risk of certain things. So someone who is type 2 diabetic with um, unresolved insulin resistance and unmanaged care could end up increasing her risk of breast cancer, for example, by using hormone replacement therapy, even the best hormone replacement therapy. So that's why it, you know, we're being a little cheeky and saying, no, it's not a biohack, it's an optimizer, you need to do all the things, but we're serious about why you have to do all the things. It is about health. And I personally just... I've started taking estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone in a cream method, and um, it's all compounded in a compounded pharmacy. But I'd love for you to talk about kind of the different types of HRT and what is your favorite and why. Okay, we can give a bit of a high-level overview. So um, HRT is, it's actually, we get this question all the time, so probably throw this up. I probably somewhat unwittingly just call it HRT for hormone replacement therapy. What I'm really, truly referring to, maybe I'm just being lazy by leaving one letter off, but it's really BHRT. But I will say, I almost never say that. I just say HRT. So for hormone replacement therapy, there is bioidentical and then there is uh, non-bioidentical. And so your non-bioidentical is going to be things like Premarin. And um, that would be the estrogen component. And then for your progesterone component, it's actually a progestin. And that would be something like progesterone acetate, or it would be like the usage of a Mirena for the progestin in there. Um, less common these days, but we still do see some women being put on non-bioidenticals. Okay, so that's the two big classes. And then for bioidenticals, that's going to be your 
estradiol, and then that comes in various different forms, pill, patch, injection, cream, uh, trochee, which is like a little lozenge you put in the mouth. Um, and then you've got your progesterone, which would be, uh, what is it called again, Kristen? The, the pharmaceutical progesterone. Prometrium, or you can get just micronized uh, compounded progesterone in a capsule or cream. So that's, cream. A, that's, the, that's the big overview. Yeah, I would say one thing is that, um, as Maria kind of highlighted, there's people get hung up on that nomenclature, right? HRT, BHRT. Now there's also MHT, which has been thrown into the mix. And that refers to menopausal hormone therapy. And we would say, pay attention to what your providers use or what people you're talking to use when they refer to it. Because um, unless they kind of acknowledge, like Maria just did, that bioidenticals sort of assumed, why would we want to take synthetics when we say HRT? Some kind of staunch uh, conventional providers, when they say HRT, they mean things like the birth control pill. Okay, so they are talking about synthetics. Um, so BHRT differentiates, but then MHT is talking about a bias towards using hormones solely to address symptoms for a short duration of time and at low doses, because this is a group of mostly physicians affiliated with a certain network who reject the notion of replacing hormones. They are just using hormones as essentially an additive to address the symptoms. They are not interested in replacing the hormone levels in your body at perimenopause and menopause to reflect those of a younger you. So that that terminology does sort of um, unmask bias sometimes when you're talking to different people about that. Um, the one thing I think Marie and I would also say is that um, there's been an upsurge in the use of vaginal estrogen um, and people are being made to believe that that is a form of HRT. The problem that that brings up is that HRT is meant to refer to things that are systemically you know, you're taking creams and they're probably looking at your blood serum. And the whole point is to make sure that your body is experiencing these hormones. Vaginal estrogen is applied just to the vaginal tissues. It can be in different forms, um, <clears throat> different types of estrogen. And that's truly meant to just lubricate and, and moisten um, the vaginal tissues, which for most women in midlife do become thin, dry, and a little bit uncomfortable. So if a woman is put on vaginal estrogen, and her doctor tells her that that is HRT, that's a huge problem because she is not getting the benefit body-wide of that estrogen. It's truly just a local delivery of estrogen to the vaginal tissues. So that's another piece of HRT that we want to help women understand. So I want to repeat that because that was just so good. And I want to repeat what I heard you say. So out of the different ones, there's the pill, the patch, the injection, the trochee, the cream. Did you mention pellets? We did, think, but it is it is an option. <laughs> not yeah, really, not a great one. Right. The pill, patch, injection, trochee, cream, pellets, and then the trochee, which I I actually have never, I've heard of it, and I know it's that small square that's similar to like a lozenge or a cough drop, and it just literally like dissolves and kind of slowly over time, you know, it gives you that the hormones through your, under your tongue. I've never heard of anyone doing that. So out of those, kind of talk about the pros and cons of each, if you could. 
Well, um, first of all, we're, we need to clear up that we're kind of talking primarily about estrogen here because you're not going to get progesterone injections and things right. like that. Um, so we're talking primarily of estrogen, which is what we should be talking about because it is sort of the mother hormone of the female body. It truly does have the most global kind of control over our health. Um, so we would say, you know, but pellets would be something that you can get in just testosterone only, or you can get them in combinations with estrogen. We're not fans of pellets. Um, you know, they go into the skin. So there is a slight procedure involved. Um, unfortunately, they're usually administered by people who are not trained in HRT. They're just trained in pellet insertion. Um, so that means you're probably not getting a lot of monitoring, but you're also getting a dose that you can't modify until those pellets are gone and it's time to change them out again. So, you know, HRT is something that has a transition just as much as perimenopause is a transition. And you need someone who's, you know, not just looking over you, but having positioned you in a way to have your dosing modified if you need it to be. So that's why we're not fans of pellets. Oral estrogen, pills of estrogen, not a good thing at all because we are now going through the digestive system. We have first pass in the liver and the metabolites that are created from that are going to be more potent, tend to be toxic, can be carcinogenic. So pills and pellets, not fans of whether they're bioidentical or not. Um, so then we're really just talking about the patches, the creams, the trochees and injections. Um, and we would say, you know, they all have their pros and cons. At the end of the day, what works best for you is what works best, right? It's how is it compliance wise? Are you able to take it regularly? Is it interfering with your life at all? Um, how are your symptoms and how is your health and how are your blood serum numbers responding? But if you had to pick kind of like your top two, which forms would be your top two? I would say cream. Uh, estrogen would be cream and injection. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then what about progesterone? Oral. Yeah. I mean, that. so progesterone usually falls into one of two camps. It's either going to be creams or it's going to be oral progesterone. Um, we would say it, it, the vast majority of studies show that are focused on, I should say, oral progesterone in terms of protect, protecting a woman's uterus. So estrogen stimulates tissue growth. Progesterone tends to put the brakes on it. So they're a very, you know, kind of simpatico relationship. We need both. Um, the problem is, is that there just aren't a ton of studies on transdermal progesterone. So to dismiss it out of box because the studies aren't there to prove it are pretty unfair. Um, that being said, you know, progesterone as a cream can be very sticky. So some women don't like applying it. Um, progesterone orally comes in two forms, which a lot of women don't realize. One is sort of your pharmaceutical, you know, branded prometrium, as Maria just said. It tends to be suspended in an oil, a peanut oil typically. So if women have an allergy, that can be an issue. Um, but it's very standardized in its dosing. So we're talking like 100 milligrams. Think of oral progesterone via Prometrium, similar to Advil, right? You got one pill, either take one, two, three, however it works, but you don't get a ton of being able to tailor um, the amount of progesterone for what a woman needs. And then you can do compounded progesterone, meaning your compounded pharmacy would make it in a capsule for you. You usually can avoid the oil. Um, frequently, you can avoid the colors that are used in certain capsules from Big Pharma. And then your doctor would have much more flexibility over the dosing schedule. So those can be, you know, 50 milligram caplets and things like that. So let's talk about testosterone for just a second. Are you seeing a lot of women, their testosterone levels really low as well? And why? 
actually not really. And um, so here's how hormones fall. It's probably DHEA that folds first. No one ever considers that. It starts at around 30. And then um, progesterone falls, then estrogen falls, and then usually testosterone falls. Do we see women with low testosterone? Yes, but not. it's really the progesterone and the estrogen that get low. Um, and women have a source of testosterone coming from their adrenal glands. So not, it doesn't just come from the ovaries in women. So it's ovaries and adrenals. So, I mean, I've seen women honestly as old as 70 with some decent amount of testosterone left still. Yeah. And we, we do have concerns about replacing testosterone before it's needed solely because the women, you know, it's a lot of bang for your buck. That's why it gets a lot of kind of attention right now in some functional medicine circles. It's like give women testosterone. It's like giving her you know, some jet fuel and maybe she loses some body fat really fast and her libido jack, you know, skyrockets and her partner's happy and all these great things. But then eventually she will crash. And testosterone can can compete with the estrogen receptor. So when they're given together straight from the beginning of a woman's journey with HRT, it can actually interfere with her ability to get her estrogen levels taken up to a level that's, you know, going to be health protective. So most HRT providers who are really skilled in the nuances of it will hold off on testosterone for at least the first three months and just focus on estrogen and progesterone and then add testosterone if it's needed. But some women never need it. So at some point, we've all been sold a lie. And let me tell you why. In the 80s, we all believed more protein equals more muscle growth. Well, it could be a lie. And let me tell you why. Because if you eat eight ounces of chicken breast, then you're consuming about 40 grams of protein. But just because something contains 40 grams of protein, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna absorb all 40 grams of protein because without enzymes, guess what? It could end up all in your toilet bowl because your small intestines can only absorb protein that's been broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. So it doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein, if you don't have the sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, then guess what? You're gonna be starving for those vital building blocks. So it's really important that you take a high quality enzyme. So before you run out and just buy anything, guess what? I love Masszymes by Buy Optimizers because it has five different kinds of proteins. And that's what you need, all five of them. So go there, go to masszymes.com slash wasteaway and use the coupon code wasteaway10 and you'll get 10% off. So you guys have this amazing class on improving your thyroid health and it's completely free. Thank you guys for being so generous with all your information. But I want you guys to give a little glimpse of that class, like kind of the top three things. And then you guys all need to go to wiseandwell.me and watch the whole class. But give them a tasting of that, of what you are seeing that the major thing is wrong where where someone is improving thyroid health. And do it on an advanced level because the listeners we have on here are really advanced thyroid listeners. We've had tons of guests on for um, thyroid. So they're more advanced listeners. Sure. And I'll just say that the thyroid class is actually at um, the link on our website called masterclasses. So if anyone is looking for it, that's, that's, that's where it resides. Um, so the problem with uh, the, what we're seeing with thyroid is that 
um, women are not testing. Or even if they're starting on, say, medication, they need to be testing like six to eight weeks later to see is that the right dose of medication for them. So fortunately, we see lots of women like on a low level of medication. They never test. Maybe they got some initial symptom relief, but it's just not enough. Or the doctors are only testing their TSH. Or they are only getting a synthetic, which is not necessarily bad when it comes to thyroid, but they're getting a T4 medication, most likely that's Synthroid or Levoxyl. Um, and I would say well over 80% of women don't really feel any better um, from that. And that's because we need really T3 uh, is the active thyroid hormone and we convert that in gut and liver. And so many of us, especially as we age, we have gut dysfunction uh, and we're not converting, you know, we're missing minerals. Uh, we are uh, underwriting, we're undernourished, uh, and we just don't have what the thyroid needs to convert T4 to T3, which is really important. Yeah. Inflammation can be a big issue too. And the sad thing is, is that as women age without hormones, estrogen in particular, they are in a default state of inflammation. So you, women can kind of get this double whammy where they lose their estrogen and their thyroid, you know, sort of slows down because of the ensuing inflammation from the low estrogen status. So it's definitely something that, you know, I think a lot of women are resistant to. There seems to be this kind of pushback, like I don't want to take thyroid medication, but, you know, my eyes got slower as I aged. I'm still going to wear glasses, right? And so we want to kind of get past that resistance because the thyroid is really important to your metabolic rate. And we really do want to support it if we need to. The other thing that happens is that in menopause, we become more susceptible to autoimmune processes. The autoimmune or the immune system sort of balanced response um, is definitely driven by estrogen. So as we lose estrogen, we can lose that balanced response. And you will see some women developing Hashimoto's um, which is an autoimmune disease, not necessarily a thyroid disease, but obviously affecting the thyroid. So there's definitely things in there that women sort of need to pay attention to because this is sort of an inflection point in our lives at midlife where we're losing certain things naturally. That's normal, but it's not optimal. And then it may create a cascade of other problems. So one of the things that I have noticed is that, you know, people who are more traditional doctors versus a more functional medicine doctor. Um, you know, their ranges of what they think the numbers should be really vary. So like a traditional doctor's like, oh yeah, if it's between this and this, it's great. Um, but functional medicine doctors um, are more in this tighter window. So talk about some of the numbers that you like to see on the tests uh, for the different tests for thyroid, where you say, this is where we're seeing people have energy, they're feeling great um, and that sort of thing. It would be really ideal if we could all have our pre-T3 and both 3.3. Um, we're finding that really, really difficult. Really hard. Um, it, would, it would be acceptable, kind of close to ideal if we could have our free t 3 above 3. When we get below 3, um, that's when we think, you know, there's a conversion issue. You need minerals. Um, you may need, uh, if you're a woman using um, estrogen therapy, you may need quite the bit of extra thyroid support in terms of like a glandular medicine. Um, and that's because the, this is sort of like everyone thinks, you know, oh, well, estrogen's going to cure everything. No, not true. Um, the thyroid, like Kristen said, does tend to kind of go through its own thyroid, thyroid pause or slowing with age. But when we 
add estrogen. Um, this may not happen right away. Estrogen creates binding proteins, which can actually bind up some thyroid hormone. So a lot of women need thyroid support, um, what, you know, whether it's due to age or age plus HRT use. So we've got that, that there. As far as the TSH, I mean, again, it would be ideal if everyone would be between about a one and a two. Naturally, um, probably maybe 2.5 is acceptable. Uh, but once we get above that, we're thought to be, you know, that, that's, that's the brain calling for the thyroid to please send more hormones into the bloodstream. Yeah. And we don't see a ton of people with low free T4. That would truly be like primary, you know, thyroid dysfunction that the thyroid's not responding to the brain. Um, but ideally you're at 1.1 or higher. So, you know, off and on we'll see someone, maybe she's like 0.97 or something, but seeing someone who's like truly low free T4 seems to be more and more uncommon. And that it's really either this low free T3 or some sort of autoimmune process that started. One of the classes that you have that is awesome is the optimizing midlife with protein, muscle, and HRT. So I want you to just talk about why you think protein is so important and how you've seen kind of what you, if you were going to talk to someone about their diet and making sure they're slimming down, what would kind of be some tips of advice you would give? Well, first of all, um, you know, we were, I think we're all used to hearing the word protein and we think we know what it means. But at the end of the day, what anyone really talking about protein is talking about amino acids. And so understanding that what we're looking for is a complete profile of essential amino acids, along with certain amino acids hitting a threshold. Okay. Particularly, we want to see leucine, which is one of the main amino acids primarily found in animal products at 2.5 grams or higher in a meal. So what that means is that in order to get that, you're usually needing to eat a minimum of 30 grams of any given animal protein in order to achieve that leucine threshold. Why does that matter? Because leucine is what kicks off muscle protein synthesis. Whether you are worried about getting bulky or not is not the question. It's really about maintaining muscle mass on your body. And, you know, women think of muscle either as like something that's going to be all defined on their body or they think of bulky things. But the reality is that muscle is actually this metabolic engine for us. It, it serves a lot of different um, roles. And one of them being it's a huge sink for glucose. So actually, the more muscle you have, the more capacity you have for carbohydrates. Um, too many women are starving themselves, losing their muscle and then losing their ability to have carbohydrates and can't figure out why they're in that vicious cycle. Um, muscle also um, signals for the bones to remodel. So you want to keep strong bones, you actually need strong muscle or an adequate muscle. Um, muscle is really relevant for inflammation control. It releases certain things called cytokines that are actually anti-inflammatory. Um, there are different cytokines that can be inflammatory, but it depends on where they come from. The ones that come from muscle actually help reduce inflammation. Muscle also triggers certain chemical responses in the immune system. You want to fight off viruses and avoid certain things. You need adequate muscle. So how do we maintain that muscle as we age? Because we are naturally losing it. That's just part of aging. We have to eat protein and we have to strength train. And so that's what we try and get across to women in that protein class is understanding the why and then sort of going into the how. So, you know, the why is that it's much more than just looking good and nakedness. 
um, and making sure that we can stand up and sit down off of the toilet without assistance. But it's about these other kind of biological things that are going on that muscle controls. So then the how becomes eating a minimum of 30 grams of protein in a meal. Sad fact is that as we age, we sort of lose our efficiency at turning over amino acids. So for most women as they age, that needs to be more like 40 grams of protein in a meal. Um, and then making sure that we're strength training. So that's kind of our, you know, very basic template for the what and the how. Um, and then, you know, women, it does mean that they're going to have to eat. And this is something that a lot of women, you know, kind of resist and they think coffee is a breakfast and, you know, that they can have a salad for lunch, maybe with a little sprinkling of chicken, and then they'll kind of have a decent dinner. And that's not going to be a template that allows you to maintain your muscle. So let's talk about kind of a day in the life of you of like, well, what does a lunch look like? Like for both of you, like if you were like, this would be the perfect lunch where I'd be like, I feel like a million bucks. I'm getting the amount of protein. And what does dinner look like? Where you said, this is the ideal dinner. I finish eating this and I feel wonderful. I'm going to guess Marie and I are very close on our answers here, but go ahead, Marie. Oh, sure. Okay. So for lunch, since you asked me to start with lunch, I had a can of salmon. Um, I had a little bit of mayonnaise and a little bit of uh, kind of whole grain Dijon mustard in there. And I had it with some pork rinds because I love the crunch. Um, and then because I wanted something sweet after that, I had a, a protein bar, a small protein bar. It was delicious. So I feel so satisfied. And what's dinner? And what about dinner? Dinner is going to be, um, so it's a chicken and baby broccoli stir fry. Um, and I also defrosted a four ounce piece of salmon for myself because I don't think the chicken's going to be enough. So, and I probably will have some, some, um, some white rice that I cooked and I'm cu currently cooling it down now. So it has less blood sugar impact. Yeah. So we eat a very similar lunch most days. Um, some days, I will have an arugula salad uh, that is just kind of the base and then probably anywhere from six to eight ounces of chicken on it with some shredded carrots and um, a chopped up egg and then some ranch dressing. So that tends to be kind of an easy one. But I would say four out of seven days a week, I'm exactly like Maria. I use a can of wild salmon from Costco, um, a spoonful of mayonnaise. I have a um, diced up hard boiled egg and a spoonful of relish. And I will eat that with pork rinds with my dogs on either side of me begging to share in that meal. Um, and then dinner for me, like tonight is going to be shredded pulled pork over some wilted cabbage um, and probably some potatoes alongside of that. And then otherwise, I'm usually probably a filet mignon or a burger um, and maybe some bacon and maybe another egg. <laughs> I tend to go pretty heavy on my protein. You know, I start my morning every day with pretty heavy strength training six days a week. So I need to fuel that. There's no way I could do what I'm doing in the gym and not be eating. Is there anything that you completely avoid? Like, would you say like, you know, I don't have gluten or I, there's just some things that I go, this is kind of an off limit for me. I just don't eat it because I know I'm going to feel terrible and it's not going to work well for me. 100% gluten for me. I'm, I've developed celiac. Um, and so that is a huge issue for me. Um, I would say things like spinach, um, almond milk. Um, I'm not a huge smoothie person with tons of fruit, kind of the traditional smoothie. 
Um, for me, a smoothie looks more like an entire, you know, a big serving of Greek yogurt with a scoop of whey protein powder stirred into it and maybe some, you know, coconut or nuts or something and maybe a berry or two. But um, I'm not a huge, huge fruit person beyond just having some really good dark berries with breakfast. Um, and then really just the gluten, I, you know, in all forms. It's just not something that makes me feel good ever. Me too. What about you, Maria? Um, well, I don't fully avoid gluten. I just find myself traveling sometimes and I and I do partake and doesn't seem to bother me, but that what that's might say otherwise. They have in the past. <laughs> um I'm just being honest here. Um, I actually, three years ago, I made a decision to completely give up alcohol. And I'm like, I'm very, very happy to have done that. Um, it brings, it brings detriment to me. It took me a long time to realize that. I thought that, you know, one glass, I was never a big drinker. One glass once in a blue moon, like, I don't know, one to two times a month. But honestly, I just, the recovery from that one cocktail glass of wine just just did not feel well the next day. And I finally said, what the heck are you doing? And so I fully cut it out. So that that for me, and I would just say, like, um, obviously, I don't ever drink soda or juice. That's yeah. just, uh, I just would never want to drink sugar like that. Um, and then lastly, it would be just like really highly processed, poor quality food. That's that's pretty much the only thing I avoid. And then, um, gosh, I guess really. I would say oils though, too. You and I are pretty wedded to our olive oil. Yeah. Um, Olive oil, butter, ghee, you know, I I like flour. I save all my bacon fat. (laughs) Right. So like really poor quality oils. Yeah. That's a hundred percent avoidance unless, uh, unless I am unwittingly consuming some because the snake that I had out of the house was seared in it, which I hope not, but, um, and then just gosh, things like um oh grape I would never eat and um uh just things like mussels and oysters I would never eat. <laughs> yeah. And I'm 32 years alcohol free, so I don't even consider that something I'm avoiding. It's just not something that's ever had a role in my life. So yeah, I'm the same way. I probably drink about three or four times. Uh, a year, if that, and it'll be one drink at that time. I've just never, I've never been a drinker. I'm, I don't, I like to eat my calories instead of drink them. So it's just, I don't know if I have my choice. I've just, and I feel like I'm just as much fun without drinking. So I'm totally. Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, what if I not asked you that you want listeners to know? Cause you guys really do such a great job of really taking women to the next level with their health. But what is kind of one thing that you want them to know that maybe they ask you, get the question a lot that that you want to impart to the listeners? I would say one of the things that we get very frequently is do I have to wait until I've stopped, my periods have fully stopped um, before I can begin HRT? And the answer is absolutely not. We would like to say, if this is something that you're interested in, learn about what your options are. Um, and the sooner, the better when it comes to, I I don't want to say like a 25 year old, that's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about, you know, you're 40 something, you're starting to get symptoms. Um, and you, uh, you just notice things are changing. Like that's your, your harbinger is like, oh, symptoms, 40 something period is like maybe missing an action every once in a while. 
or, you know, it's gotten close together. Like, don't don't wait like another five years of, of uh, you know, irregular periods just because, you know, you have to have gone 12 months without a period. I will tell you, we have had clients who have been late, uh, late, you know, stage menopause, like they didn't stop their period until they were 55, 56. It does happen. My very own sister-in-law uh, was the same way. And, you know, they just deliberated and waited on HRT. And I would say, you know, Christian and I, we just have seen them age, I think, more than they needed to. Yeah. Because they were just so set on waiting for that full 12 months. So it's really important for women to understand that the ovaries are in a wind down. And, and you know, that could be going on for several years before you actually reach that final menstrual period. Yeah. I would say, okay. um, oh, no, I was going to say the other thing that we're pretty adamant about is, you know, even if we kind of light a fire and spark your interest in HRT, it's not about just finding a, a provider. We get that all the time. How do I find a provider? Do you have a name of a provider? And what we have to say to women is, why do you want the name of a provider if you don't know what you want or need yet? And so that's why we kind of pull back and say, educate yourself. There are people out there who educate on this and find out all of your options. Learn what they can do, those options each can do, and what they cannot do. Figure out what your goals are. Is it just to get rid of hot flashes and lose a little tummy bloat? Or is it to make sure that you don't develop Alzheimer's? You know, figure out sort of the landscape of HRT as it relates to your personal health journey. And then you search for a provider who's aligned with that. Because if you just find a provider and go to them, all you're going to get is that provider's version of HRT. And as you know, you asked us to kind of give the whole gamut. There's not just one thing that makes HRT. There's a lot of different options out there. So that piece of it, we think is really important. Just too many women want to jump in, even if they do have the diet and lifestyle down, they just want to jump in and do that via a provider. Well, a provider is not your solution. Education and knowledge is your solution. So a lot of people kind of say, there's some people who are like, saliva is the clear choice versus blood for hormone <laughs> testing. And some people say blood is absolutely the clear choice. And I feel like people are kind of, you know, they're either in one camp or another. So I'd love to hear what is your form of choice where you say, when we test, this is what we love and why. I would say, we'll say we're in the red camp, we're in the blood camp, but but it requires some nuance. And that is, you know, if you're a woman on HRT and you want to track your levels, which I hope you are, because there are so many doctors who will just put a woman on and they don't track, which, you know, you could be, you could have started at below five picograms and gosh, jolly, that patch has gotten me up to 30 and your hot flashes are gone. Well, 30 is pretty damn low still. So we do hope you're tracking. If you're tracking and you're on HRT, you need to be tracking in blood. Okay. That's her absolute level. If you want to see how hormones are metabolized in the body, that means how do they go through the processes of detoxification? Because that is what they need to do. Then you want to see that in something called urine metabolites. That's the only way that you can see that. So we like those two. We don't really like saliva testing. I mean, saliva testing is fine for 4-point cortisol, but, you know, I think there's 
very few of us that need just that data. We want a lot more data than just that. Yeah, I think part of the thing that people don't understand, and this isn't conspiracy theories, it's just unfortunately the landscape of our kind of medical industrial complex, is that um, the saliva testing is primarily focused by certain physician organizations that receive their funding from a particular lab that has a wonderful at-home saliva test kit. So, um, you know, when you hear someone say, oh, my doctor's testing me in saliva, um, most likely their doctor is a member of this particular physician's organization that gets much of its corporate funding from this particular lab. So, you know, it's an unfortunate landscape because we'd like to trust that the medical interventions and testing modalities that are chosen are actually because they're the right ones, not just because they're the ones with the most influence, but that's just kind of where we are today. So are you doing meeting with people one-on-one or how does that work? Are you just doing the master classes? We, we have a one-on-one component to our work. Uh, but we, <laughs> if we had to do just one-on-one, we'd be working like Monday through Saturday. <laughs> so um, we have a six-month program where we bring you through the education. And by the time you get through that education, which is only eight weeks of that six months, we do meet with you. And you will get testing as well. Um, and we do a deep dive into your lifestyle. And then, you know, the program is six months. Why? Because a lot of women at that eight week mark, when they've gone through the education, they know what the heck they want. For HRT, we provided them a referral because I would say 99% of women who work with us do HRT, you know, have a desire to. They're kind of coming in to learn. Um, some actually don't because they're like, they don't quite need it yet, but they are at least educated for when they need it. Um, but then we we continue to support you for four more months, you know, and that's why it's a six-month program. So yes, there is a one-on-one component, um, but part of it is, uh, part, you know, we, we need to educate you first before we get to that one-on-one. And do you have anything on your website that kind of says, like, here's what we, you, you've kind of given us a glimpse of some different things. Like you said, you know, your you want your free three, your free T3, which most doctors don't even test, by the way, to be about 3.3 or higher. Um, but do you have a breakdown of kind of the other labs where you say, okay, we've written all these down. Here's where we feel like women are at their optimal. No. Um, no. And the reason why we don't is because it also depends. It depends on what form of HRT you're on. What is your dosing regimen? Are you cycling on and off progesterone? Um, you know, is, is there a different expression of the hormone based on the dosing profile that's chosen by your provider? So there isn't one set. There are different, um, you know, benchmarks depending on what you're on. And that is just way too complicated and we, to be perfectly frank, we see too many women trying to biohack their HRT and they will message us and say, so I'm using this, but do you think I should add another pump and should I do it once a day or should I do it? We're not going to answer those questions to someone who's not a client because we don't even know if you should be on HRT. You know, do you have cardiovascular disease? Do you have insulin resistance? What is the health of your body? Is your doctor looking at any of these things? Um, you know, did you start testosterone too early? Is it all in one cream or is it separate things so that your doctor can toggle these things? It's so, so nuanced. And I hope this sort of underscores for women that, again, finding a provider to do, quote unquote, do HRT isn't what you're looking for. You need to understand yourself, the nuances, 
and then have a provider who's deeply trained in those nuances and is committed to kind of working with you as you go on because too many women are just being given HRT. This is why we have a huge issue with these huge femtech companies that are doing mail order HRT. Where is the oversight? Where is the oversight? And, and an at-home saliva test kit sent in to that you know femtech company online is not oversight. So there's just too much nuance, honestly, for us to put that out on the web. Um, but when you know, you're a private client, this is in addition to the one-on-one work that Maria referenced, we're also meeting with our ladies every two weeks as a group. So there's a ton of handholding and, you know, sort of an AMA environment where they can ask us pretty much anything and we really go deep for them. And, you know, they just, they get a lot of information. Most of our clients are more informed than the average doctor when it comes to HRT when they're done. And I do want you to talk about the protein one more time because I do agree. Like when I'm eating a lot of protein, I just, I literally feel like a different person. And I feel like some people are like, you know, you should have between 50 and 60 grams of protein. Other people are like, you need to have 80 pro- grams of protein a day. Some are at like 120. What would you say is kind of for you, the sweet spot where you go, when I'm eating this much protein, I'm able to stay lean and I'm feeling like a million bucks. It's, I mean, it also partly decide, depends on a woman's size. Um, to be perfectly frank. So a very simple benchmark is to say, what is your desired body weight and match that in grams? So if you know you wanted to be 140 pounds, you should be aiming for 140 grams. A lot of women, that is a huge ask because as you said, they're at like 40 grams of protein a day. Um, so work your way up to it. You know, start with breakfast. It's a huge spot for hitting satiety, balancing your blood sugar and really providing you kind of an even keel and, and solid foundation for the day. Um, I don't think that there are many women who should be getting under 100 grams of protein a day, to be perfectly frank. So that's got to be kind of our line in the sand is 100 grams. And then it really depends also on your activity level. Like I said, I go through strength training cycles where I am lifting really heavy with lots of volume, you know, with a trainer who's programming this. Those days, I need more protein. Yesterday was a leg day for me. I did heavy, heavy squats, lots of them, along with deadlifts, along with some other things. And by the evening, I had a second dinner. I was starving. And this wasn't for lack of having not nailed my macros earlier in the day. It was truly because my body was like, um, hello, you know, you really worked me and you need to feed me now. So women need to start kind of listening to those signals and just making sure they're at least getting that minimum of 100 grams. Awesome. Well, this has been amazing. Tell listeners where they can find you and where they can follow you. We're pretty active on Instagram. And so they just put wise and well into the search bar. We should come up right away. Um, and then we have um, a alternate channel where we do like deeper dive. You know, Instagram is soundbite health, right? So we have a channel called Mighty Networks. Um, and if women go to our Instagram and go to the link in the bio, they can access our Mighty Networks there. And um, so we have written, uh, really deep dive articles. We have, what is it, a seven or eight part article on cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Um, so much confusion around that. We have an article called, um, if H- uh, if menopause is natural, why would I even consider HRT? Um, we have another well, series on the history of why HRT has kind of this negative rap and why doctors might tell you it's dangerous and sort of where that stems from. So we just try and give a lot of information as to what's going on. So women are informed. 
Yeah, it's great. Well, you guys stay tuned. We've got another episode coming up in just a few. Bye-bye for now. Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, it would mean the world to us for you to leave a review on iTunes to get this podcast out to others that may have the same questions that you do. And as always, if you have a question that you want answered, email those to questions at chantelrayway.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.